one of the reasons why today we began our service in looking at the significance of God's Word and then recalling from Deuteronomy in our confession. And remember the context of Deuteronomy. The people are just about to go into the promised land. Generation had died. Moses had gathered those who were going in and reminds them again of the significance and the power of God's Word. I want you to know that there's not a separation between that Word and the Word that we share in Ghana and the word that we share in our communities and the word that we share at home and there's not a difference in that word and the word that we share here. Uh, when hearing about certain persons, uh, we often hear this phrase, there's the man, uh, there's the message, and then his mission. And when this phrase is used, it's being used to describe what seems to be uh, an inseparable bond or a connectivity between the three. It's being used to describe a consistency and a deep commitment that seemed to be the driving force in accomplishing the mission. I don't know if you've thought about it or not. I have this week. That is exactly what we have been considering in Matthew's Gospel. We've been looking at Jesus. The man, the message, and His mission. And so far we've seen that Matthew's made a clear claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah, King, the Son of God who came to save His people from their sins. Don't miss that. Don't forget that. He's the fulfillment of prophecies that trace back to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Micah, and Hosea, Jeremiah, and yes, even Moses. Where we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I, meaning Yahweh, the triune God, will put enmity between you, which was referring to the serpent, who is Satan, the fallen archangel, who along with one-third of the angelic force of heaven, revolted against Yahweh and were cast out of heaven. And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You know, in other translations, we, the word offspring is translated seed. He shall bruise your head, pointing to Christ, this King, this Messiah. And you shall bruise His heel. So we see the man, this God-man, Jesus, His message, which we have heard over and over again that He was preaching. Uh, we pointed back to it again last week as Jesus was teaching about parables of the kingdom. Why? Because He had said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is His message. That has been His message. That He has been calling on people to pay close attention that He is the Messiah King. And He, as King, was establishing a new kingdom. An eternal kingdom. A kingdom much different than they had known. Much different than they even imagined. Different than they hoped for. It was a kingdom where He, the Messiah King, would reign with absolute authority. Where righteousness and justice, as we sang just a moment ago, would be meted out in absolute perfection where every man and woman would lovingly submit to and obey the authority of God, where peace would be experienced in its fullness, and the great King would be worshipped and served for all eternity. This is a kingdom whose citizens are wholly devoted to the King and His glory. 
It's a kingdom that was ushered into upon His arrival in His incarnation and will be consummated only after He had completed the work on earth that was necessary for, remember what we heard just a moment ago, for the atonement of sin, enabling sinful man's forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of the King to be imputed to the sinful man. It's a kingdom whose citizenship is granted to those who trust Him. And Adam, as you said last week, treasure Him above all else. It's a kingdom that transcends the world and will be finally settled when He, the great King, returns to earth, indiscriminately judges all that has and does oppose Him, Booney, as you pointed us to from the text. And takes to Himself those who have by faith believed in, followed, loved, obeyed, and treasured Him. It's a kingdom that in this world its citizens are dispersed among those who hate and reject the King and His kingdom. But in the new world, in the new world, they are citizens that will live with the King alone forever separated from those who hate the king and his kingdom. And there the citizens of this great kingdom will rejoice and worship for all eternity, uninhibited by any sin, evil, sickness, pain, suffering, hatred, strife, untruth, rejection, or persecution. As the hymn writer so aptly put it, there will be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness no more pain, no more parting over there, but forever they will be with the One who died for them. And all will be peace forevermore there. It's great, isn't it? But not yet. That is what Matthew is trying to help us see. But not Yet, even Matthew, through the accounts of Jesus, and even quoting him, was communicating, the kingdom is here, but not yet consummated. Why is this important? Why is this so important? In Matthew, it is true, as well as the other Gospels and even the whole of the New Testament, the ongoing message is about this man, his message, his mission, and his people, the church. It's an ongoing argument among every human being. Everyone will ultimately face this man, his message, and his mission. This is why we even approach the text today. Text that will seem so familiar that as we look at the historical accounts of these miraculous works, we will be tempted to only hear them as children's Bible stories without considering the role they played in His disclosure then and in His disclosure now. And we'll be, if we're not careful, failing to experience what 
they experienced as He was disclosed to them. But we have more than they have. We have encountered, those of us who have trusted Christ, have encountered the resurrected Christ. And we have been so privileged as to have the Holy Spirit of God detonate within us a bomb that exploded that spiritual heart of stone and destroyed it and picked it out piece by piece as shrapnel and replaced it with a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God and longs to have intimacy with Him. And we would admit today, yet due to our apathy toward Him and the ongoing bombardment of distractions, we can at most times hardly feel that heart beat. It will be faint at times. So faint because it has been momentarily restricted from beating with zeal, passion, conviction, absolute desperation. So we look at our text today, hopefully, to have our hearts awakened to this God-man, His message and His mission. Look at verse 51, 13. Have you understood these things, they said to him? Yes, and he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And then in verse 53, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, meaning Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Catch that word. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's interesting that coming out of such clear teaching about his kingdom where we heard him say emphatically, that His kingdom was not a proposed endeavor, mind you, but one that was destined to succeed. Recall the mustard seed, the smallest of the seed, and it becoming a tree in which birds find their roost. In fact, it is a kingdom that has and will impact, and as Adam pointed to last week, include people from every corner of the world. It will receive peoples from every kingdom, nation, tribe, and language. 
It'll be an ethnic amalgamation with one thing in common. One thing. They will come from all over the world, not to pass under the Grand Lady of the Statue of Liberty, but under the cross of Jesus. They will be redeemed by the blood of Christ and will be unified in one common act, the worship of God. And will, as long as they remain on this earth, in this life, will have one common goal. To exalt the name of Jesus and point others to do the same. Hearts will reject Him. The people will coexist with those who reject them. Even when some of those who reject Him will at times try to play the part of a believer. But they will not be able to for long. The fake shine doesn't last. It won't. Their hearts and attitudes are a dead giveaway. They will be called on to love the way a believer is to love and they'll not be able to love that way. They will not be able to do it because they do not possess the love of God. They're not born of God, but their father is the devil. They will be called on to extend grace to someone and they'll not be able to do it. They will be called on to give biblical counsel and they will not be able to do it. All that they will have to give is the direction that the world gives. They'll be called on to give a defense of the gospel. And they won't know what to say. And they will be called on to die for their faith. And they will shout out loud, My faith isn't real. <laughs> Don't confuse me for one of them. Jesus said His kingdom is certain and it is slowly permeates the inward man, transforming him. And simultaneously it permeates the world. And with that is the backdrop we just read. We hear that even his home community wasn't sure of him. Familiarity really does breed contempt. Jesus said a prophet is not without honor in his hometown and in his own household. The account is showing, Matthew is pointedly showing that there is still this lack of understanding of who he is. And I want to tell you, Having been 5,000 miles away with our mission team, people are still confused about who Jesus is. But I would not have had to travel 5,000 miles. I could have traveled less than a mile. Probably 500 yards from here. And I would find people who are confused about who Jesus is. And you know what? He was in his hometown and he did not do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. We shouldn't forget that we have seen other mighty works done where faith wasn't mentioned. So are we to assume that somehow all of His mighty works are driven by the faithfulness of the people? And I don't think so. However, we do have accounts where the faith of certain individuals are mentioned, and we have seen some of those in Matthew. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, we looked at, and I recall, that the centurion came to Jesus seeking help for his servant. And his humility and faith were so unlike what Jesus had witnessed. Jesus said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
what we know about Jesus' mighty works is that He never did them to show off. He never did them to show off. He wasn't about to in Nazareth. He had taught them. He had lived among them. They had seen Him. But He was not going to do mighty works just to show off. They were astonished with His wisdom. And they were astonished having already seen mighty works. Would more mighty works have settled the issue for them? And Jesus knew that it wouldn't. They misunderstood God and they misunderstood His Son. Look in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, and it's important that these two are connected, and I want you to see this connection. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath, his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Matthew is all along the way helping us give attention to who Jesus is, helping us understand what a disciple is, defining faith for us, because He is doing this for the church. Living honorably is hard. Being the needed but unwanted voice of truth is not popular. We're going to find that out even more in the days to come. Just yesterday we texted Adam and Booney, uh, just been pressing upon my heart that in the wake of Roe v. Wade, what does that mean for us as believers and what does it mean for church? There's not a one of us, I think, I can say this, there's not a one of us that thought, would have thought 24 months ago that Roe v. Wade, v. Wade would have been reversed. We would not have thought a year ago that it would have been reversed. Maybe you had confidence that it would, but I have lived my adult life seeing that whatever the Supreme Court said and it go down, stayed and it would stand and it would not be reversed. And we have all along been supportive of all pro-life issues. But you know, today the church and believers really do have something that needs to be done here. And we need to find out what it is. And I will tell you that a stand for truth will not be popular in the days ahead. And it wasn't for John. And the unwanted voice of truth will not be popular. And it will not be for us. But we see in the next part of the text, and I want you to catch what's happening here in this text. We read the account of John the Baptist's death, but realize that this narrative is looking back on it. 
Why? Because Jesus isn't understood. He's misunderstood. Herod sees Jesus and immediately says, this is John the Baptist resurrected. Now John had not done any of the signs and works that Jesus had done, or at least we don't have record of it. His message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was pointing to the Christ. And we know that John didn't perform these signs, but think about it. Think about the significance of the prophet at work. So much so that truth was so connected with mighty works that Herod believed that he could certainly have done the works because of who he was. This tells us a couple of things that are important. God, in sending His last prophet, His last Old Testament prophet, was showing such grace and power and opportunity. Don't miss this. Coupled with that, that in John's day of ministry, the fulfillment of His prophetic word was right there. It was right there. It was immediate. And once he baptized Jesus, everything that he was saying, I'm telling you about him. I'm telling you about him. I'm pointing you to him. And Jesus was making his way. So think about it for just a moment. We have John the Baptist who is preaching, and we have his disciples. We have Jesus who is preaching and doing mighty works, and John is pointing to him, and he has his disciples. And then all of a sudden, this ends. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown and in his own household. The Holy Spirit has John's death in mind to point us to what is about to come with Christ. Why? Because this prophet does not even have honor in his hometown. We have the death of the last Old Testament prophet and then we will see the death of the one that he was pointed to. Why? Because his death must come. His death must come so that he can save his people from their sins. His death must come so that his kingdom can be ultimately consummated. The last Old Testament prophet pointing to the kingdom. And what will come next will come a cataclysmic event that will be unlike any other event in all of human history. Because God incarnate is walking on the earth and He will be crucified. And His identity will at that moment be more fully disclosed What is the picture that we give of Jesus today? Him on the cross and Him resurrected. The fulfillment of this so that this kingdom that we preach of, this kingdom that we are part of, this kingdom that we point people to, this kingdom that we long to see people come into, that is the picture. That's where His identity is disclosed. Look in verse 13. And when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd. And He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, 
The disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to Him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And He said, Bring them here to Me. And then He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and had a blessing. And then He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Matthew, catch this, begins now to weave into this gospel account the story that is found in all four of the gospels. We know it is the feeding of the 5,000, but it really should be the feeding of of many because there are at least 5,000 men, their women, and their children. Remember, we've already said that Matthew's account is not in every way chronological, but he orders the events in such a way as to make his argument and notice that his emphasis is on the fact that at least some, if not most, of John's disciples are gravitating to Jesus. John the Baptist is out of the way. The old covenant for all practical purposes was ending and coming to a completion with the death of John. Now everything now is being focused on Jesus. Because there's no one else like Him. And John knew that. And the demands of Jesus' public ministry are getting heavier and heavier as we begin to move to the cross. It can and often does for all of us as the longer we stay in this, the harder it gets. So we see that Jesus moves to a desolate place, probably in part to rest, but also in part to get out of the immediate watchful eye of Herod. He knew Herod. Herod was weak, but he was ruthless. And he lacked wisdom. You couple those three together and you have a dangerous man. And though he's seeking refuge from the people, I want you to catch this. Thousands follow him to this desolate place where he goes. And in verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It seems to be pretty commonplace for us as we've been working through Matthew, but don't let this picture escape you. He went to them. He saw them. He healed their sick. I'm moved by the love and care that Jesus has for His people. Uh, Just a few days ago, last week, uh, we drove up to a village, remote village, no electricity, Nothing around. And we parked where we were and we got out with our intent to cross the river to go to another village. But we were already in this village. And before we would get out of the village, a woman would come finding out who we were and said, will you come with me? And three or four of us followed around uh, to a courtyard and you'll see some of the pictures. But uh, these mud huts with thatch roofs and inside there is a courtyard and They've taken some cement and clay and they've made a floor out over the courtyard and was carried over to 
uh, one of the places and there was a straw mat laying on this hard surface and there was a man laid out, looked to be lifeless, a rag over his head, flies were all over his body, the rag was there to keep the flies from being on his face. As we inquired, he was a stroke victim, had been taken to a medical clinic, there was nothing that they could do for him and they sent him home. He had a slight movement in his right hand and the reason that I know that is that he tried to slide his hand out toward me. The rest of his body was lifeless. They got behind him and lifted him up and as he sat there with his head down, he was drooling and they kept wiping his drool. Uh, they wanted us to pray for him. And my heart was heavy. And I interceded for him and interceded for the family. I couldn't get away from him in my mind. We left. We gave him a small gift. We left. We went over to the village, did our work. We came back. Still on my mind. We left. We came back the next day. First place I wanted to go, I wanted to go back. I wanted to read Scripture. I didn't know what he could hear. Everything was translated. But I wanted him to know that Jesus Christ cares for those who are sick and those who are disabled. Don't miss this here. In the midst of this message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the midst of the mission that He will save His people from their sins, Jesus has compassion. The same compassion that drives Him to give attention to the hurting, to the one who is in despair, to the one who is suffering, to the one who is in anguish, to the one who is grieving, is the compassion that drives Him to go to the cross to save those He came to save. Part of the message, no doubt, is to communicate the agenda of this kingdom. As He looks out on everyone, He sees sheep without a shepherd that are broken and hurt and lost. And I want you to catch this here. We just, we're about to see what He has done in His power, but we already know because we have all of these accounts of what He's done. Jesus isn't consumed with His power. Any man who has power becomes consumed with his own power. Jesus doesn't. An eternal God has no fear of losing power or control. And in no place does Jesus lose power or control. We see evidence even in our own lives. When we lose power and control, we begin to grapple after it and we fail to see others around us because we have to see that power and control restored. We will hurt people to get it. We will step on people to get it. We seldom help anyone as we work through that, but not Jesus. He can at the same moment hold all of creation together and at the same time attend the broken heart or the broken leg of one of His image bearers. I hope you take heart in this. Matthew's wanting us to see the compassion of Christ displayed even when fatigue is present, even when other things are occupying his mind. And this will be incumbent upon his disciples as well. 
even when he knows his days of being able to bear witness in a particular way are quickly coming to an end, he attends the needs of that one who's hurting. I want you to notice also in this text, don't miss the commitment of the people. Now, I'm not here holding them up as people of faith. We know when we get to John chapter 6 and read the account that they weren't faithful. But generally speaking, look at the time and attention that they give to him. I thought about this as I was working through this text in regards to being in a different culture. Generally speaking, how much time and attention do you give to preparing your meals for each day? Justin loves to cook. He may spend a lot of time doing it. I don't know. I don't think he has much time to do that though. How much time do we do it? Think about it. How many of us will be honest and admit it's probably very little? That's not a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. We have access to food anytime, almost anywhere. Many of us will just say, well, we'll figure it out at the end of the day. That's a Western mindset. Why? Because we have restaurants and we can generally get our hands on food or prepackaged food or whatever it may be. But not all cultures operate that way and it's this culture didn't operate that way. This culture, it took them all day long to get ready to prepare a meal. We were in a culture and just in a similar way. In many cases, if meat were to be a part of the meal, the animal had to be killed and the meat prepared. Grain would have to be ground. Water would have to be brought from the nearest water supply. Wood would have to be gathered to, to heat the pots and get them ready. All of this would go into a day's work. You say, what does all of this have to do with this text? They left all day long knowing that they didn't have anything to eat and they were not going to have time to prepare anything to eat and there wasn't a McDonald's and an Arby's and Islands and a this and a that and all along the way. 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, gather for the better part of a day to listen to Jesus teach and witness the healing of their friends. It's clear that their ordinary daily routine was not what was pressing upon them. Their busyness, which is a virtue, mind you, in our culture. Busyness is a virtue. Their busyness, if there was such a thing in those days, was not governing them on that day. They were committed to being with Jesus. As I said, I'm not pressing on them a great faith. But I am reminded when I look at this text, if they who do not yet believe find Jesus so captivating that they will forget the needs of the day to be in His presence and listen to Him, You fill in the rest. You know you. I know me. Jesus sees their commitment and He cares for them enough that He doesn't want to send them away. So what does He do? He says, don't send them away. And then He turns to His disciples and notice what He tells them. Give them something to eat. Give them something to eat. 
why in the world did he say that? At the time when we look at the other accounts, there's no evidence that there is any food in hand. What is he pressing upon them? Was he in, in some way trying to be a smart aleck? Oh, they need something to eat. You give them something to eat. I don't think so. Was he insinuating? You've got the power to do it. Conjure it up. Make it happen. I don't think so. Is he trying to make them look bad in front of everybody so that somehow or another he'll look good? That's not what Jesus does. It appears that he wants them to do exactly what they did. He wants them to come and say, we can't, but you can. Isn't that what they do? They bring this lunch and they still have no idea what to do. Us, feet, this is all we got. Looking around. There may be 15, 20,000 people. And he's looking. We can't, but you can. He's teaching his disciples how to follow and trust in him. In not so many days, he'll not be with them. What will they do? He wants them to learn that he can. Don't you think at least that has some bearing upon what we see of Jesus in the 18th verse of the last chapter of Matthew when He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And then He sends them out to do what seems to be the impossible. And He says, And I'm going with you and you will not be alone. You can't, but I can. Go. He's preparing them for something else that they can't do. They can't go to the cross. We won't look at the text, but when he's getting ready to go to the cross, he said, We'll drink the cup. You can't. You can't purchase your atonement. You can't face the wrath of God and live. Hear that. If you're not believing yet, young or old, you can't face the wrath of God and live. Believers, listen to that. He is our atonement. The very reason we can live is because He could and we can't. That's the point. But there's another element regarding this in discipleship. And I mentioned it a moment ago. Don't miss it. Look at verse 19. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Have you ever wondered why he didn't just drop food down in front of the people where they gathered? We hear in one of the other gospel accounts that the disciples had assembled them in groups. Why didn't the food just move from there to there? Could it have? Sure it could have. He broke the loaves and He gave it to the disciples. Why? He was showing them and teaching them that they would be the distribution 
mechanism of His grace. Do you know what we do when we preach and teach the gospel? We are distributors of the grace of God. We're simply carrying the Word of God to someone. We're simply sitting and explaining the Word of God. We can't change a heart. We can't change a mind. We can argue all day long to somehow or another convince someone to believe in Jesus. And that is not our point. Our point is, is that we continue to go back and back and back being distributors of the grace of God. To do what He can do and what we can't. Those two important things flowing out of this narrative. We can't change the hearts of people. We're called to distribute the gospel of grace. Look at verse 22. Immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out and feared. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if, some translation, since, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped Him saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The word immediately is important. After this great display of supernatural power, John tells us, John's Gospel tells us that the people were about to make Him king. And He knew it. That may be one of the reasons why he sent his disciples away. He didn't want them to get caught up in all the confusion. He was going to, Jesus was going to say, no, 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 no. But he was afraid his disciples would get all caught up in this thing about making him king. So he sends them away. He says, get in the boat and go to the other side. In other words, I'll catch up with you. So the disciples went. They got in the boat. And the wind was against them. Have you ever tried to sail or paddle in a headwind? You ever tried to run in a strong headwind? You ever tried to ride a bike in a strong headwind? Man, it gets hard. It gets hard. It is constantly, and it seems like you're getting nowhere. Well, this is what had happened. They were they were at least well into the night. Somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. They have been rowing, sailing, whatever. And they just have not made, they've not made the way. And they look over and they see who they think is Jesus walking on the water. And they immediately say, it's a ghost. That makes sense, doesn't it? It does to me. Made sense to them. It had to be a ghost. Why? 
Men don't walk on water. Have you ever seen anyone walk on water? Well, I haven't. They haven't. Men don't walk on water. We can swim, we can float, but we can't walk on water. So it had to be a ghost. And then he says, no, it's not. He said, take heart, it is I. In the Greek, I am. Don't be afraid. And at least as we see, it settled Peter for a moment because he says, since it's you, command me to come and I'll come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And he meant it. It wasn't one of those things to, to get him out, to watch him choke, go to the bottom. No, he said, come. And Peter exited the boat and began walking to Jesus. But when he considered what he had done and the circumstances around him, he began to sink. But what does he say? Lord, save me. I don't see him whispering that. Lord, save me. And Jesus does. And then he says, and I don't believe Jesus' disposition has changed any from when he saw the people who were hurting and needed healing. He said, oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? He was lovingly reminding him, I have you. I have you. Trust me. I have you. Trust me. I have you. It seems that Matthew is intent on us seeing how saving faith works. I trust. I doubt. He has me. I trust, I doubt. He has me, He holds me, He keeps me. Now I want you to go back to chapter 13. And I want you to look at verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And, it's implied, they said, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? And He doesn't do any work in their midst because He has already revealed to them who He is and they don't get it. More mighty works is not going to help. And then look at verse 33 of chapter 14. And this is the climax of the text. And those in the boat worshipped Him saying, What? It is almost as if they are shouting back to Nazareth. It is like they are shouting back to Herod. Truly, you are the Son of God. 
the man, the message, and his mission. He's the Son of God. Matthew is pointing us there because he is going to show us again the mission. And what is it? That he came to save his people from their sins. How? By his atoning work on Calvary and his resurrection. For what purpose? So that the sinful man's sins can be forgiven and the righteousness of the king be imputed upon them. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.